Welcome back to the Black Studies Podcast, a space where we discuss the creative and collaborative work in Black Studies. My name is Sally El-Sayed, your editor, producer, and co-host of the series. Co-hosting this episode with me today is Professor Daniel McNeil. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Sally. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Black Studies Podcast. I'm thrilled that we're joined today by Natalia Hunter-Young and Lauren Kramer. They are two incredible and generous thinkers who carved out time to join us to talk about Black study, popular culture, mentorship, method, and so much more. Natalia Hunter-Young is a writer, film curator, and pre-doctoral fellow in Black Studies at Queen University. She's also a PhD candidate in Communication and Culture at Toronto Metropolitan University and York University, and an international programmer at the Toronto International Film Festival. Her doctoral research considers the social and cultural impacts of social media videos documenting anti-Black police brutality through the discursive interpretations of three Black visual artists in Canada, the United States, and South Africa. Lauren McLeod Kramer is an assistant professor in the Cinema Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. Her work focuses on the aesthetics of Blackness and popular culture and she is currently writing a book on hip-hop visual culture and Black spatial practice. Lauren is a founding member of Liquid Blackness, a research project on Blackness and aesthetics, and is the co-editor of Liquid Blackness, a journal of aesthetics and Black studies. Her writing has appeared in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, The Black Scholar, Black Camera, Film Criticism, The Los Angeles Review of Books, The Quarterly Review of Film and Video, and the edited collection, Writing for Screen Media. To engage with the politics and ethics of co-authorship and collaborative knowledge-making, we worked with Natalia and Lauren in advance of the episode to co-create questions for their conversation about Black liberation, mentorship, screen studies, and creative possibilities. Hi, Natalia. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for joining us today. You're doing such interesting work on Blackness and popular culture as scholars, editors, and curators. We're really excited to learn more about your approaches to creative and collaborative knowledge making. And we're wondering if we might kick off the conversation by asking, where did you first meet? And when did you first encounter each other's work? Sure, yeah. I was at Black Studies Summer School that was held collaboratively between University of Toronto Scarborough and Queen's. And <laughs> I felt like when Lauren was presenting, she was presenting my dissertation, a lot of the theories obsessing over by myself, uh, uh, she was presenting and I, was just, I felt like I was on mute, on Zoom, kind of screaming, 
thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That was my experience. So yeah, immediately it was like, oh, I need to know this person more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I uh, feel really lucky. I was invited to join the like planning committee for the Black Studies Summer Seminar, which is um, organized um, in part by one of my colleagues uh, at University of Toronto, Mark Campbell, um, in collaboration with um, a lot of other amazing people. And it was it was this amazing experience for me getting to come to this event with all of these uh, students across different disciplines invested in Black Studies here in Canada because I'm still new here and I really felt like it was it was a real important turning point in my starting in my recognition like oh what's happening in Black Studies in Canada is something very important like you really need to be aware of where you are and the distinction there and you know so I just had the pleasure of like hearing all of these students and um, you know, upcoming scholars thinking and asking questions and like kind of the delighted feeling of like, oh man, I would have loved this group when I was in grad school. Um, yeah, so it was just really super special. It was awesome. Um, it was the perfect example of like Black study, like there, you know, like there's the content of what we do, but there's also the way in which we do it and this sort of mode of collaborative thinking and and the event was is just put together so thoughtfully by the organizers in terms of when we have sort of open sessions and closed sessions and how we share. Um, it really feels like the work of doing Black Studies. Um, it's a real like model of that. So I'll just ask because you said you know like oh I was touching on dissertation topic like do you want to tell us a little bit about the sorts of things that you kick around. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think part of what what you were um, speaking about, Sylvia Winter's rethinking aesthetics notes toward a deciphering practice, which another guest faculty member, Mark Campbell, had introduced me to in my first year of the, the program. And since then, I, like I spent a long time trying to figure out <laughs> a little bit of what it meant. Um, and then coming back to it, um, having had like little nuggets of understanding helped make more understanding along the way. Um, and so, yeah, so I think you were talking about uh, the paper that I just felt like I was thinking about alone. Of course I wasn't, but many people are thinking about it alone. <laughs> <laughs> and together. And I just hadn't had many opportunities to talk with or hear someone else describe aesthetics in the way that I had been trying to make it make sense for me and my project. And so my project takes up Fred Moten's question and in the break where he asked to think of the what happened around the murder, the lynching of, of Emmett Till. And, and Mammy Till's choice to show his in-casket photo, he asks us to think about it as an aesthetic. And like, that's kind of where I'm starting in my project. I'm, I'm thinking about the circulation of uh, social media police brutality videos and as an aesthetic that is conditioning um, how we come to see and understand the world um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I think 
it was just so refreshing to hear someone talk about aesthetics as I was understanding them or as I was trying to understand them. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that those of us who work on popular culture, um, you know, and like objects, I think of a certain scale um, that, yeah, I don't know. I guess like I just feel like we're always searching for the ways to sort of take seriously these objects that I think are constantly doing this work of world building. And it's like, if we know that we are like, you know, immersed in these images of the kinds of videos, you know, that are violent, that circulate, that you're studying, or for me, like I study music videos, you know, those are the, that's the world I live in that's full of pleasure and joy. Um, And, and I know that it makes my world. And so therefore, like, I need the tools to sort of like think critically about how they're formed. Like, how could I actually move around a space? Um, if this is what my, if this is, you know, the built environment and it, in the, that the environment is, um, is popular culture, is popular media. Um, and I don't think that it's always a question of, oh, well, this is important because lots of people see it. Like, I think that that's a starting point for thinking, taking pop culture seriously. But I think that we find these really interesting questions when we start to push past and think about form, like, what is this encounter with blackness like that I have on a daily basis in these other, in these forms that are not the high art object? Um, so, yeah. Um, sorry. I was just listening. <laughs> not thinking on my own of what to say in response to that. It was so, I was just listening to what you were saying. Uh, I mean, as you're talking about world building and the music video, like or music videos populating your world it makes me think of the time when you know music videos very much did populate my world Uh, they did it was what I was talking to my peers about every day Uh, it was all we were all going home to watch 106 in park you know we were all in tune with what album was coming out when and we were all up in HMV, which like doesn't even exist anymore. It just like is a very different world of having to engage with music now. Um, and it's almost hard to extract yourself from this and go back. You have to really, it's a totally material shift. Yeah. I, I mean, even I just received, for instance, I just received Aaliyah's uh, self-titled album uh, in the mail, the vinyl, which like I got one of those spammy emails and I was like, how can I not? Right. Like <laughs> I can't not because it was, it's me they're talking to. And then I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. I'll sign back up. And like, yes, take all of my money and what else do you have, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and it's also like, I've been robbed of Aaliyah's genius for the last few years because of the way that the industry has, has redecided to monetize the way that we communicate to each other. And it makes me angry. (laughs) You know, that's my world that you're taking from me and I got to find my way back to in some sort of like, I don't know, creative way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, that is so fascinating. I do think that, so anytime that I'm asked to talk about music videos and someone's like, oh, what's your favorite? I always have this hesitation, like I'm going to name something and in two minutes, whenever this is like printed or whatever, the, the thing I've named will be so wildly irrelevant because 
part of what fascinates me about these objects is the fact that they are in constant motion. We like metabolize them so quickly. And so you look silly when I'm like, oh, I think that, you know, yes. whatever videos like changed the world, you know? I mean, in the height of like WAP, moment you know what I mean like it felt like there will never be another music video after this and you know what like when was the last time you thought about that music video um I just feel like this pace is is so fast and it, it makes me think about when you say you know oh I remember running home to watch 106 in park and thinking about videos and now I feel like I don't have access to these things I love anymore I absolutely understand what you're saying but I think that the genius of black popular culture is like oh well it's on tiktok um, here are your music yes. videos. Well, and you'll always find it. Yeah, yeah. You always find it. And you will always find it if you have the openness and the willingness to engage with Black popular culture as the ever-moving thing. Now, if you're not, then yeah, it's full of heartbreak. Um, I was speaking to someone recently and they they were like, you know, these kids, I feel so bad. They're never going to know, you know, and they were naming like it was kind of real hip hop head argument. Um, like it'll never be like this again. And I was like, I appreciate that. You're absolutely it's just true. And yet and yet, um, you know, this this gatekeeping, this this idea of like the, the privileged moment. And that was the only moment of relevancy or rebellion or wild style. You know, I just but, but it's hard to you know, we all have our moments, um, but we have to, the, we like people fall in love with hip hop or, or in, and black popular culture just in general because of that motion, because the energy is actually, it, it feels, you know, immediate and right there. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I don't know, it feels tangible in all of these different ways. And so if we go and do this thing where we're like, this is how it was and this is how it should be. It's so funny because we take away that like vitality that made us fall in love with um, popular culture. And yet like, Every year I get older and I'm like, what's this? <laughs> so, you know, I think that we're like in danger of getting away from like the objects that I love. But yeah, I think that, um, yeah, it's a constantly moving target for the people who are trying to study these objects. Absolutely. I, you're making me think of this. I have, I often have this memory where I was in my parents' kitchen doing, but they, we were all there for some reason. And CBC was always playing. Uh, and I would always go in there and change it to Flow, <laughs> which was the Black radio station in Toronto at the time. And um, and so my mom's in there and she's hearing someone say how Brian McKnight is so great because he never uses any samples. And then she turns to me and is like, you know, see, no samples. Brian McKnight, it's great. You know, and I'm like, sampling is an art form. You don't understand. <laughs> you don't get it, you know? And now I'm listening to like Lucky Days Over, for instance, and I'm like, I can't handle this, but then I can. I, I just needed to get like, I need to just get over the first few bars, I guess, or something. But um it was really hard to extend myself to that song because of what the early sample change in rhythm uh, did for me and my own like rhythmic memory or, <laughs> you know, whatever it was. 
That's such a beautiful way to describe, um, because, you know, you pointed out this idea of like, man, R&B right now is like really, really sample heavy. Um, and in this like highly recognizable way, because I, I was thinking, I was like, is it sonically a little bit different? Um, and I love this idea of right now that there's like kind of a moment in music that is like really, really leaning on like sampling references to like 90s and, and, they're, and they're not... Um, obscuring the song abstracting it in the way that like some producers do but instead you're like oh I know this song and then it changes into something else I love the idea of like black popular culture booting you out from the thing that you recognize and the thing that you know so you're like I know this song I love it and then it knocks you into the new track in a way that is like stop thinking we're gonna stay the same like the change is gonna happen the movement is gonna happen um like it feels like a beautiful formal gesture of of motion, of forward movement, of the willingness to step into kind of an ever-evolving new sound, because it is jarring. It is actually jarring when you think it's one song and it's another. Um, yeah. Oh, I love that. Also, in my mind, I do like a really good Lucky Day impression, and so I love an example. <laughs> uh... I don't have an ex- <laughs> Do you want? Don't worry, that'll be an off recording. That'll be an off okay. moment. Not, not to worry. <laughs> no, I'm not saying. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, what were you just saying? So I, in like, I feel every time when you like, you remind me that it's right. You're right. It is about the motion. It is about movement, and it's constantly moving. And it's the beauty of like being able to hear my parents dancing in their youth when I put on like the temptations or Aretha Franklin, like that's the gift I am given because of black music. Um, um, But there is always this tension between uh, holding on and going with the flow, I guess, or going where the record takes you. Um, And that will bring that always, I mean, it's like everywhere. It's it's all over hip hop. It's all over R and B. Yeah, that tension between no, it's got to sound this way. It's got to feel this way. Um, It had to do this thing. It couldn't have been that popular, you know, for it to qualify as this and that. I remember when they were debating whether or not to play Andre 3000's Hey Ya on on flow because it didn't sound, it didn't sound like they were expect, they had hip hop and R&B didn't sound like Hey Ya at the time. Um... And then there was a, I remember the debate around whether or not to play Justin Timberlake on flow, you know, because is this a black radio station or, and is this black music and what is, what's happening here with this, with this, you know, there was so, it was so early, these kind of, um, the movements that were happening through the genre that people were trying to hold on to something, um, anything to make it feel stale still feel ours but the reality is that it's always already ours and as you say industry can't really get in the way of us finding it well and i think you know in fandom there there's a fun there's a pleasure in like talking about like what's the best what's your top five this what's your top five that but i think that that is different from 
something that I think that we people in black studies have to deal with in academia, which is, you know, like, to what degree do I replicate the methodologies, the reading strategies, yeah. the, the signifiers of value that were like part of our training? Um, and where do we refuse to, to, to replicate those things? Um, and so I think that kind of like the aura around an object, the privileged work of art, the, you know, the original, um, all of those things are like there, it's the, it mean, it's a constant temptation to start adopting the markers of, um, of whiteness, um, that can never quite measure, can, can't measure black expressive culture. So this, yeah, this idea of like Brian McKnight is so great because he doesn't sample. I've never heard anyone make an art like that as an assessment of an artist. And it's just like, okay, it's so unhelpful. Um, yeah, like, I, yeah, I love the idea. That doesn't say anything about like the beauty of Brian McKnight's music because of it, because it's got this emphasis on originality. And so you're not saying anything, that's not anything that's super helpful about Brian McKnight, but then it also doesn't say anything about the original or the, the, I shouldn't use that word again, the creativity, the generativity of people who have a really complicated sampling practice. And so it just goes to show like the, the actual, the rubric doesn't even work. Um, and I think it's, something we have to think about as we evaluate our art objects, but even as we evaluate like the quality of our own work, you know, like how, how much does my writing look like the way, you know, an academic standard should be or should look like or feel like, um, or, you know, how can we, how does the institution measure the quality of my work so that they can tell me I can, you know, go up a rank or I finish my comprehensive exam or, you know, all of the various stages that we're all moving through. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, because I write in a lot of different spaces and um, and that ends up being a way for me to say similar things different ways uh, to different people. Um, and it and what I've realized, I guess over the last over the course of this PhD, I feel like the writing which I was trying to, replicate form in different ways i feel like they've actually come like this sorry this is radio <laughs> together um i think they've come together so that uh meaning i feel like i can write almost in one way i can use i feel yeah and that comes honestly um it's only it's it's only kind of a reflexive um observ it was a reflexive observation in first year when i had tried to use um winter's rethinking aesthetics for the first time in a paper and though i was happy with kind of how i found the answers i found for myself through it um i was really unhappy with uh how difficult it was for those who asked to read it to understand so um and I, I don't think that was because of the material I think it was because of the writing and that's the challenge that I took on was to try and like I guess adapt my writing in that way so anyway as you're saying like I, I yeah I'm thinking as I move into hopefully a tenure track 
position um, and continue writing, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Can I can I write an essay and publish it in Rolling Stone? And could I also publish potentially not the same essay, but an essay written in a similar way in an academic journal? And I think I can. Now, I think our culture, I think pop culture is there now. Um, And I think a lot of that is because of Black studies, because the, I think, American culture always comes back to us for some content. (laughs) Um, And I think that, you know, that's a little bit of what's happening, but maybe I'll stop there. (laughs) No, I mean, that's, that's incredibly encouraging and exciting for me to hear that, you know, that early in your career, that kind of like, I can think the way I want to. And I recognize that the work that I'm doing is not suited by mimicking a style, a sort of academic style, the sort of standard style that a lot of us are encouraged to write with. And, and you know, do start off writing very awkwardly, trying to adopt a certain tone, um, especially, I think, a certain critical distance that feels like it's important for serious scholarly work when, you know, at times, like, we're often writing on things we love very deeply. And so it's a little, there's always something a little bit funny to um talk about a music video that I really love and pretend as if you know I'm 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 researcher I'm above this I'm bringing my genius to it and I will address it and that's that like and rather than you know say the truth is the reason I'm writing this piece that's this long is because oh because I love it, you know. Um, one time, one time I was uh, presenting on a music video. It's "Until the Quiet Comes," directed by Khalil Joseph at a conference, and someone pointed out, "Every time I hear you present on this music video, you kind of are always like bopping your head while it plays, or and then when you come back, you always say something like, oh, 'Oh, isn't it so good?'" And it was like, you know, consider consider if that's a professional gesture that you want to do. And I was like wait, I should pretend I don't like it, then why would I be studying it, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that, yeah, there has to, it, it requires like some confidence or some feelings of support to know that um, that you can express your thoughts in whatever way that feels right to you and that it doesn't need to match something else. I mean, that's, that's very exciting. I, I mean, there's reasons, right? There's reasons for that. I started this degree in 2016 um, with in the wake, Christina Sharp's in the wake in my hands. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, word, we can write like this? And then when I sit down to um, actually start writing my dissertation, Catherine McKittrick's Dear Science comes out and she says, hell yeah, we can write like this. And here's how, here's how, you know? And I'm like, okay, I had no rules by the time I'm defending. You can't tell me anything. <laughs> and it's like, and that's be that's a little bit of like, I've, I've taken breaks on the academic road. I've worked, I have, I am working through the course of this, um, degree I developed a curatorial practice in film which 
taught me that I can actually just love on artwork, like you said, Lauren. Like, it's I make the best work when I love on something. People listen when I love on something. Um, and that's the thing that I'm rem- I'm realizing more and more, especially now as I'm in the midst of uh, chatting to people about my work and trying to move on in the professional world. And they are telling me, oh, yeah, I read this thing you wrote. And like, I'm kind of, first I'm like, what did you read? <laughs> and then I'm like, no, I like what I wrote. And it's good if they liked it, too. You know what I mean? No matter kind of where um, where it ended up. And I like that I have... I have stuff everywhere that I feel like I can talk about my work to everyone. Um, uh, that's like, that's the the goal. And maybe that's because I'm a communication student or me. And no, it's probably not that. It's, it's, I think it's because I know, um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. You really make me want to go back and, do like a sort of periodization of my academic career in books that the idea of I started my PhD and in the way it came out, I started my dissertation and dear science came out. That is the most special, incredible thing I have ever heard. I certainly feel that way. Oh my God. I certainly feel what that way. What a gift, way. you know, like what a gift. I'm blown away by that. Um, it's an invitation for to think with these people because I think that that's how those, both of those works feel like to me. They feel like invitations. I think it's even evident in their size. They've got a little like, they're you know they're loose. They're loose. They're there feels like there's more, and you're invited to think of those additional things. Um, yeah. Um, oh, that's so cool. And I I'm trying to think about these these books and. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe I was fighting with um, a few texts early on without realizing like how much, how much more generative and pleasurable it is to actually just think about who you want to think with rather than writing in this way that can be like, this has not been yet addressed and this has not been acknowledged. Like that's so uninteresting and like it isn't generous. Um, but instead, like something came out and now I get to think with it. It's so much more fun. It feels so much better. And it's such a better way to engage with like you're writing about black studies and about a certain maybe like these different modes of sociality that can exist for black people. Then, of course, you should be your citation should be thinking with, you know what I mean? And rather than a sort of, you know, cutting down other thinkers in order to prove your point. Um, oh, so lucky I feel very lucky I feel um it's exactly what you said I felt like I I was invited to I was invited into those texts um I was invited to think with those authors and uh so much so that I like needed to track one down to become my supervisor and eventually needed uh, to track one down to become another mentor to me, you know? And, uh, but it's, 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 they had, I, they spoke, both of them spoke really directly to creative practice and the world in a way that I had never seen um so um 
it was really influential. It was really impressive on me. Uh, it, it really, I felt like I, I, I identify differently in the world after In the Wake. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. Um, and I think I can now identify as a Black Studies scholar in uh, almost the freest sense because of Dear Science and, and the freedom that McKittrick has given us with method, particularly. Um, and the connections that both Sharp and McKittrick have made between, and it's not just those scholars, this is a, several scholars are doing this, but I had, these were the, the books that came out at the time. And, and uh, yeah, both of them ended up just being these incredible platforms for intellectual and creative experimentation. Um as it and and told me that experimenting was enough and i like you know it's like i'm so grateful for that it was an entire gift i, I mean at a time when i was desperately searching for answers i started in 2016 so we're talking philando castile alton sterling um and and that's when I started, I knew this was going to get worse. Um, certainly didn't expect 2020 when I sat down to start writing the dissertation, but there we go. Um, so yeah, I was, I was really, I needed an answer. <laughs> I needed an answer so badly. Mm as to like how we were going to deal with this because it was going to get worse. And I, I, everywhere we look, I can't, I can't have it be everywhere all the time. And, and what is happening? I wanted to know what was happening. And I slowly but surely found little um, pieces of the puzzle, scholars, Winter, Clyde R. Taylor, who had, done this thinking in the 80s right uh in the 90s um and so generously wrote it down for us um to so that we can start to have that greater understanding of where creativity and black study how they how they are entirely in you know um you cannot pull those two things apart they are one and the same for me, they really are. Creativity and Black study is the same thing. I, I mean, I love that. And I do think that, um, you know, so I was trained in like film studies and it's always, and there's this thing where if you tell someone that you are working in film studies, um, they're like, ooh, can I, should I get your signature? You can be a famous director. And I have to be like, no, I, I can barely turn a camera on. Um, I am purely, I, I just study them. I just study them. And I think that it is kind of exciting when someone gives you license to be like, you are making as well. And so you have to be just as thoughtful about the tools that you use and just as thoughtful about the style that you use, even though I, I would say like, oh, that person's the artist. I'm just this. And I do think that like work that is so um, focused on process does give us license to think like, oh, I'm making something. And so why would I not be just as, you know, artful 
and you, you know, use language that's just as artful as the work that I'm admiring, that I'm trying to speak to. Um, and so I think that's really nice. Now I have to ask a question though. And I asked this of like everyone that I advise and they don't like it. Um, but you were mentioning, you know, I, I needed answers to my questions. Can I ask like, what are your questions? <laughs> I know that's a hard, a hard one, but what are your questions? Yeah. I mean, it's not hard because I've, I, you're catching me at the right time to <laughs> I've answered this question a few times over the last few weeks. Um, I, my questions really were, how are these images being absorbed into culture? And then how are they informing us to see? And by see, you know, I really was like, how are we able to literally see ourselves and other Black people? And how do how are other people being instructed to see Blackness and Black people? Like kind of all of that together, I wanted to know. Um, and then how can we see differently? Those were the questions that I started with. Um, and I didn't, they were that vague <laughs> at the beginning. And uh, they don't feel vague to me anymore because I have found some answers or like sufficient answers which are uh that we survive <laughs> that we can that we that we continue we always have um and these are the ways that we do that um which is exactly what sharp and mckittrick gave us um in in their theory and their method and i uh it was it it was constantly this kind of push and pull. There were a lot of opportunities for me to go down a road that didn't feel right. And I got to have their questions in my mind reminding me um what my job is, you know, what 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 it what I can do here, what's still possible. Um and for instance, like McKittrick says um in Dear Science, she she offers us the chorus of description is not liberation. Um and I was and the way that pops into my head all of the time as a warning now, it pop it's like a flashing red light. Nope, stop describing it. You don't need to say anymore. What we are talking about here is what this thing does, uh, what it can do, what's possible, you know? Um, and uh, that is, it's just, an, it totally just stops you in your tracks and it's like, okay, yeah, wait, I got to get back on again. And it's, and it really have had those bumpers. Black study has given me those bumpers, um, along the way to be able to find my way to three artists in Canada, uh, the US and South Africa, who are, are doing in their artwork what we can do outside in the world um, to see differently. I love that. I mean, I I just feel like it, it took me an incredibly long time to get to these questions of visuality that you're describing. Um, when I first started my graduate work, I felt like I was locked into this representational bind and I could not find the interesting question because it was like, is this good? Is this bad? You know, does this 
does this save us? You know what I mean? Or is this making things worse? I just could not get out of that bind. I could not find the right questions because so much of the discourse was taking up of these issues of stereotype and positive and negative representation or cultural uplift and things like that. And I, it was really like running into a wall and now it's, you know, it's so nice that for me to have kind of found black studies literature, like that's working across you know, that is undisciplined. Um, because now I feel like I can offer that to students who are finding themselves like walking into that wall because I, I was everywhere. Like I was like, at one point I was like, I'm going to try, you know, like critical race theory. That sounds amazing. And like really reading legal studies. And I was like, that's cool. But you know, I was really just, you know, grasping for, for a better question. Like that's how much, you know, I think you recognize that that the existing discourse, that the you know truncated version that ways that blackness gets talked about, um, that they're not just barriers to making interesting arguments. There are barriers to asking interesting questions about blackness and art because of the overemphasis on authenticity, originality. Um, biography, you know what I mean? Oh, does this represent this, this artist's life? You know, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, this person's job is, you know, imagination. So this need to like anchor black expressive culture in, um, some of these sociological concerns, I think can be, it's an attempt to like, not so that we don't ask the right question. So for instance, the artists that you're talking about, you know, on all these different places, if we were to ask, is what you're doing um, an expression of your childhood um, or your, you know, your life? Then we fail to recognize what you're arguing, which is that this work is giving a model. It's dreaming of the ways in which Black people could exist in the world that, at the moment, are only capable of being rendered in art, and we can learn and then make it so that they can be, they can happen in the real world. But if we only are asking questions of like. Now, is this is this going to or are, are white people going to like this image of blackness? Is it going to scare them? Is it going to do this or that? Um, then you miss out on all this imaginative genius that is way beyond these issues of um, good and bad representation. And so, yeah, for me to even like get out of that, it really it was an intellectual bind. And so, it's very exciting that you are. I think kind of it sounds like bypassing a lot of that stuff. It's kind of boring. <laughs> I, I only get to bypass it because of the educators who put it in front of me. I mean, well, you know, blame the Amazon algorithms maybe for helping me find sharps in the wake. But beyond that, uh, you know, which helps you just get started, right? Then you can just go everywhere um, and back and forward. And uh, But yeah, I, I mean, I needed that that. I needed Mark Campbell to put that paper in front of me. I needed Stephanie Laddie to sit down with me and explain it to me. <laughs> um, I needed uh, support and to understand that. And I still remember my friend and colleague, Steph, who's now in a, in a tenure track role of her own. Um, she is she's sitting there on the phone with me and explaining to me that what Winter is saying is that we have to get out of this reading of the uh, this reading of of humanity on or uh of black life in uh see i'm not going to do it justice but it's this she she's like this 
essentially this uh, desire to rehumanize is in in itself is playing into this binary that we don't need to play into. And like, so if you can escape from this life death binary, then there's something else there for you. And so hearing that alongside with what I was getting from all these other places and, and another person would be Nicholas Mirzoff's The Right to Look. That I was introduced to his ideas around visuality and counter-visuality in my first year in visual culture, introduction to visual culture. And I could, it blew my mind. It blew my mind by giving me new language to explain what I had thought I'd understood a certain way. And so like, you know, they, these these professors expanded my, my toolbox um, and uh, Mirzov actually, I think, was the first time I encountered the aesthetic used uh, in the way that I am using it. Um, and then w- Winter gave me uh, a huge wealth to to help understand what's happening there. But when Mirzov said that the point or, or the way that power and authority work are by convincing us of something's rightness uh, and that that is an aesthetic assessment. I was like, whoa, huh. Wonder what he means by aesthetic. And then I kept finding it here and there. And then um, my supervisor, Christina Sharp, you know, happens to <laughs> move to Canada in the middle of uh of this who who she wasn't my supervisor at the time but please believe I was trying <laughs> to make that happen as soon as I realized she was coming to Canada it's all it is all timing so much of this is timing when she, you know I didn't have black studies guidance I didn't all of these years I didn't I had Certainly, and not formal Black studies like it's been taught in the U.S. And so, and I come from a social work educational background, which gave me the community engagement, um, understanding there was there was nobody but the the person, the human. The we we're talking about someone always in the work of social work, and that helped in the transition through. Because I own, I'm only here because of the person, because of the people, because of the of the work that has to happen on the ground. So how do I bring all these things together so that I can keep thinking about them? And, and, and this is kind of where I ended up. I love that. And also I reject entirely the idea that Jeff Bezos has anything to do with the development of this project in your work. Like, no, I'm, I will not give credit to an Amazon algorithm for this. Just not going to happen. Um, but I, one of the things that because you have to do this curatorial work also and to have this background of like working with people, you know, I'm wondering if you have like thoughts about collaboration, you know, like the actual best practices of it or things that you've learned. And, and because, yeah, I think that ultimately like what we've been describing is who you've been collaborating with, even if it's just at your own desk and the person's not there, but you've been collaborating because they're, they're texts that they've generously made available. But because you also do this other work, you know, yeah, I'm curious about how you do it or what you found in that experience. Um, it's like a, it's a good question and it's something I would have been 
would have been a lot easier for me to answer a few years ago. But I think, you know, writing a dissertation is such a singular exercise that it can be very, like, isolating. But um, a few, well, in 2020, my colleague, I'll just give an example, my colleague, Sarah Riley Case, who's a, now a prophet, McGill, uh, reached out and just said, like, I, I wanted to ask you if you're going to do anything if you if if we should do something um about the uprisings following Floyd's murder um and you know i i i certainly i had questions i mean you mentioned before you know the what so much of the kind of euro american disciplines teach us to do is to limit the range of the questions that we ask. And I always have questions (laughs) and I have found a way to ask questions in a way that demonstrates that I'm like actually curious and and to which people are going to respond. So I I think I had really a lot more questions um, and I, and I had people that I I would ask those questions to. Um, and so I drafted those questions with Sarah We and we reached out to the people we would have asked, the elders we needed to help ground us intellectually in that moment um, in something. And that ended up in, as that Canadian art piece, Thoughts of Liberation, including... A number of scholars um, who who so graciously like kind of gave you know two hundred two hundred words for us to to p- put together in a way that helped us answer some questions. Um, and I, so I don't know if if the formula for me has really been anything other than sheer intense curiosity and desire for like freedom, you know, like I really would like this to stop. I need it to stop. It's been a long battle for me that brought, that brought me to social work through social work and out the other end. And I still need it to stop. So I have to find another way. And like, I am fortunate because a lot of other people did a lot of things that made this time work really well for me and the journey, the intellectual and creative journey that I was going on. Um, it just like, there's a lot of people who did a lot of things, you know, like it, also 2020. And then we have a flood of black studies positions in Canada, which is complicated, but is a th- it happened. There were way more black studies I mean, it was the first time ever anybody had ever seen anything like that for Black scholars in Canada, um, this, this this desire to hire Black scholars. And, and that um, is, no matter kind of what conditions it, a lot of people had to do a lot of work for a lot of years to make it so that those could flow out so fast once the door was open. And like, like I know, I know those people were there doing those things. I don't know who they were, but I know that it's like, yeah, I, this is just no way. None of the, and any of this would have been possible. And so, last thing I'm going to say on this, I think, is 
something that's been really was really hard for me I think coming back to grad school to do my PhD was figuring out citational practice and it's still something I'm figuring out and that's because I oversight people I oversight um, and I am you know being coached to cite less in these various writing capacities that we have to shift through and I oversight because these people have said these things already. So I'm building on that. Um, and I also think you should go back and, and see this thing, but I have to find a way because of academia to language this as my own. And that's the most, uh, that's the worst part about this for me. Cause none of this is my own. Um, none of it is my own, not the artist's work, nothing. I, I, I really just am putting it together. I am putting it together in a way that helps me understand something and, and helps me tell the story again to other people in a different way. Uh, that's my, that's my gift is knowledge translation, <laughs> I think, and, and forming relationships of understanding that has, you know, through, through social work and, and working in the arts, those are the things that seem to keep happening. And anyway, I, I, I think, um, yeah, sorry. I'm now I'm, I've, I've lost my own train of thought, but I, I think co collaboration very much is uh, how I presume to operate. I, yeah, you, you were not used, losing your train of thought to me. I loved that. I, you know, it's, it probably would seem so obvious. If, oh, an academic, they, you start from a place of curiosity. But I think that we have all sat in enough conferences during a Q&A session when it's time to ask a question, and it is just a statement that we know that like we don't always start from that curious place that we should all the time. Sometimes we start from, I want to talk about this, and I'm going to find a way to say what I want to say. And there is a place for that, you know what I mean? But I think that, you know starting from like what we don't know and genuine curiosity, it's like vitally important. Like I, I'm, you're making me want to put this on a sign outside of a conference, like come from curiosity, you know? And so no more questions that are statements, like no more questions that take 20 minutes because <laughs> you want to give your paper. Like, you know, I love that. Um, yeah. I, I, I love that idea. Um, there is a filmmaker, Elisa Blount Moorhead, who there's an interview of her by uh, a dear friend of mine, Michelle Prettyman, in the most or upcoming issue of Liquid Blackness, the journal that I edit. Um, and the filmmaker does all of this incredible collaborative work. And she says that part of the work of collaboration is asking, you know, is asking questions. And there's the questions like what we're talking about, these sort of intellectual questions. And then she mentions that it's also your collaborator looking at you and going, how you doing? You good? You good? How you doing? You sleeping? You eating? And it just was so, again, like it should be so obvious, but for the person that I co-edit the Liquid Blackness Journal with, Alessandra Rango, who's a professor at Georgia State University and is my former advisor and now my like regular collaborator, um, when we read, when we're reading over like the draft of this and we see that part of the answer, I felt like we were both just kind of floored because, um, how much we've learned that our collaborative work includes, you know, saying like, do you need to take this week off? Like, do you need a break? You know, hey, hey, you know, I can tell the way that you're answering emails that we need to pause. Um, and so there's, yes, there's the intellectual work there, the questions about, 
you know, these complicated theoretical issues, but then there's also the question of like, how do we do this in a way that's in line with what we're saying is important to us? Like imagine trying to publish a journal on black studies and, you know, not being flexible with writers and not trying to take care between the two editors as we work together. You know, it just, that makes no sense. Um, but the way that this filmmaker articulated it was just so incredibly helpful. Um, you okay? You sleeping? Who, you know, who's in charge tonight? Like, you know, do you need a babysitter? Just like all of those things. It's just huge. Yeah, absolutely. I think I look forward to that. Um, I look forward to, I, I, when you love art, you become really good at observation. And I don't know, I think there's, you know, it's one thing that you can become good at um, or one way to become good at observation. And um, I have observed over the years that some of the scholars that I really admire are part of these research collectives. I don't know what they do. I don't know when they meet. I don't know who's in them. <laughs> but I just kind of know that one person or a couple people are in it. And they're reading something really interesting and having great conversations. I think, you know, I'm thinking in particular about, I think Kimberly Juanita Brown does one. And then there's, so she has like a Twitter page for it. And so there's like all of these kind of cryptic comments that come out about the book that I want to know more about, <laughs> but I don't know who's saying them or, you know, that they're just having these conversations. But that in and of itself is so great to see modeled, um, to know that, oh, oh, this is how it gets done. Um, okay, okay, like, I, you know, I'm paying attention to that and uh, trying to file it away for later. So like when I, when it's my turn to, uh, you know, ha have a little bit of research buddy or something that I can, you know, pull this little, I can pull these thinkers together and give them time and care, collaborative care, like you just described, to, to do the thinking that feels most meaningful for that theme yeah, that feels, that's something like I look forward to as a junior scholar. I look forward to doing that um, over the next few years. I mean, yeah, I, like a very, very practical tip, like the totally not, you know, fancy, lofty idea. There is, there has been a file on my computer <laughs> since graduate school where it's if I hear someone say something amazing and I'm like, write their name down. I'm like, I will find an excuse to do something with you. There will be a conference that needs a panel put together. There will be a moment when someone says, you know, who would you like to invite to such as a, I have a name, you know, like just it's like always being aware of, um, you know, these people that you can think with and trying to build opportunities to do so. Um, yeah, it's something that like I really enjoy and I get to go on that list and be like, yeah, I met that person. I got to exchange with them. I got to think with them and I, you know, can always tell how it's benefited me. Um, and I think it's very exciting actually for us when, when we do, we can do this for um, other, you know, junior scholars or up and, you know, emerging scholars, graduate students, um, that's what's actually really, really exciting because, you know, we don't get the invitations all the time. And so we should be building this sort of like um, relationships with each other um, because we're the ones who are going to work together for a long time. Um, we understand this sort of um, the loneliness, which we've talked about, and the precarity of the positions of being kind of early in your academic career. And so I think that... Um, 
finding the way that you could want to work with these people um, conceptually, but also just like really the praxis um, is your writing gets better. Your thinking gets better. Everything just seems to improve. Um, and it's just one more example of, you know, I do not have to internalize the emphasis on the solo genius, like me away somewhere being miserable, trying to write by myself, because that is like something that academia privileges, you know, for the kind of the single author, first author piece. Um, like I don't, I don't have to do that. Um, and it makes me a lot happier and the work is better. It's like, it's, you know, the work improves. So I think that that sense of kind of how collaboration works at both a kind of high level, but also really practically speaking, um, yeah, Alessandra and I, for example, we found out just recently, we, we both respect each other's time immensely. And we found out recently that we sometimes make each other work faster in the hopes of responding quickly to the other person. And so we're both racing to respond, but we do it for the other person. And then when you get a draft back and you're like, oh man, I didn't want this yet. You know, and then you feel like you have to respond with that speed. So we had to like, even become more transparent about the pace in which we worked. Um, because our aim was to be so, such good collaborators, but we were ratcheting the pace up too much. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes it's just like really practical stuff about what time do you email people? You know, what time do you, when do you text versus email? Because it's a different mode, you know, like all of these things I think are really, it's part of what we do. Yeah, for sure. That's a big one. <laughs> when do you text versus email? I, I'm going to have to stop texting some people when I actually get a job because it can be an email at that stage, but it's a little urgent, so it needs to be a text now. Um, uh, See, it's you're a different thinking, thing. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about the list on your computer. Um, you know, I've like often had the nervous grad student experience where you're at a conference and there's all of these scholars there that you admire and you try to go up and say one two thing you know after it's and and just say I admire your work and um that can be super awkward <laughs> for both the listener and the sayer uh for sure uh, folks have been really gracious with me um, over the years, but I think that that awkwardness puts can put grad students off um, from from reaching out and from talking to people that they admire. And I think your approach of of saying I I am going to I am just going to find a way to work with this person that like that does um, it changes the energy. It's just, um, I, I know how I work and I, I need a little bit more sustained engagement than the, the, like you said, the crowd that rushes up to the panel table at the end of a conference presentation. I, I don't shine in that moment. So I'm kind of like, you're great. You're amazing. Wow. And then the person's like, thank you. And then I realize I don't have anything else to say. You know, I need a little bit more time. And so that's not my moment to connect and shine. But if I'm given an opportunity where someone asks, like, who would you like to invite for this? Or, how, you know, oh, we need another person for this. Who should it be? Then that's like I can have that extended moment to, like, talk to this person, to exchange, to think together. And also it's really like, okay, well, what's the ask? Is the ask, like, I would like you to know me, you know, or is the ask, um, 
I love your thought and I want to create a space for you to do more of it. And that I get, and I want to be in close proximity to it because it is spectacular. And I mean, I think the four, the, you know, the latter, the former is just like, hello, <laughs> like, will you, you know, I, Hey, fancy scholar, I want you to know that I'm a person and they can go, okay, <laughs> what do you do with that? Um, what we really know is like, I just want to be a little bit closer to, you know, the, incredible way that your mind works um and and be part of it and can I say something back to you about it um yeah that latter version is certainly the the road I took most often it's just like hi I'm a person I'm doing this thing your work is super important to me doing this thing okay bye (laughs) maybe I'll email you and just say remember my name (laughs) we met at this thing and okay bye but isn't that email so hard you hello I looked, I looked starstruck several weeks ago. Do you recall? (laughs) It's such a weird message to send. Um, Whereas, you know, sort of like the thing that bonds you to this person is that you have, you have the similar questions and these are people who like love to think and are excited about them. And so it's kind of like, Hey, I'd like to meet you. And I've got a question for you. I mean, I think that, you know, that's how, you know, you lure people in because they're like, okay, I can't resist. I have that same question too. Let's find a place to have, you know, to talk about it together. It's so much more fun. Cause again, I think we need to always be searching for ways to connect. Um, and that's pre COVID, but my goodness now, you know, um, and I think any opportunity guest lecture in a class, let's do it, you know, field trip, let's go. <laughs> you know, I think we have to do that. I already have an idea that I need to come talk to you about Lord for liquid blackness. So stay tuned. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the words, or one of the phrases I've jotted down is just sustaining community. Right. So I hear Natalia speak so generously and beautifully about what Catherine McKittrick's work has meant to her. And I think of how Catherine wrote letters to Toni Morrison right, to convey what her work had meant to her journey of intellectual discovery, right? And when we have this discussion, we're thinking about what it is to think about Black art, Black art that never gives you the full number, right? I think of that conversation between Toni Morrison and Paul Gilroy, where Morrison describes Black art slapping and embracing, right? And it's... I can't thank you both enough for sharing so much of yourselves, right? To help us think about how we not only address the world with dreadful objectivity, i.e. to think about how pain is prolonged in terms of how we engage with the circulation of videos of Black death and suffering, but also to think about how we prolong pleasure Right. So I think about, um, you know, when I have conversation with Paul Gilroy for my book and he talks about going to see Bob Marley in concert and still keeping the ticket. Right. That notion of maintaining that pleasure, thinking creatively like you were both doing about not just creative recycling, not just the idea of bringing newness into the world, but also how we play carefully with living memory. And a- again and again, what I loved in the conversation was this idea of the revolutionary power of curiosity 
and sustaining a community where we all ask questions. Um, and maybe as one final question, I mean, we, we, or one penultimate question, let's say penultimate question, right? Is just to think about how do you go about cultivating space as a mentor, right? Because we thought so critically and creatively about reading practices and writing practices. And I'm wondering how do you go about creating a sense of mentorship as serious, as playful, as professional, as thoughtful within and beyond the academy? Lauren, you'll have more experience in this than me um, in the more formal capacity, but it's something that I'm on a journey to trying to figure out. Um, and it's been, it's come before it typically comes, I guess, for, or, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But during this process of doing my PhD, because I had, was also developing this curatorial practice, um, it so happened that like other folks who were interested in developing a curatorial practice were reaching out to me along the way. And so part of what I was able to do was pay forward the mentorship that had made it possible for me to pick up that practice, uh, what I did, but which was, it was totally essential, totally essential to the process. I had to know, I had to ask a question. It's very, it's very simple. <laughs> I asked, how do people become programmers to someone I knew who worked at TIFF? She said, I don't know. It's kind of like a mystery, but it's good to write about film. And there's a job posting that closes on in, in the next three days for a pre-screener. You should apply. That's how it started. Just one question. How do people become programmers? And like now, um, yeah, anyway, so I just, I think I have done my best to pick up on the folks who reach out to me who are asking the same question um, with something else behind it and to let them know that though I am sometimes not always super accessible, I will make time for you. Um, so just give me, like, work with me a little bit, but I, I will make time with uh, for you to sit down and, and help you think these ideas out loud. <clears throat> and I won't do that for everyone, but I will do it for the ones that I think I can, I can support in that way. And, I, and that's like just kind of one piece of how I'm thinking about mentorship, but it's really going to have to change as I move into um, becoming a professor and supervising graduate students. So that's, it's like really going to change. And so maybe Lauren, you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, I am, I think, just first thing, also the beneficiary of, you know, spectacular beyond mentorship, you know, um, and that, again, is Alessandra Rango, um, who is really the one who taught me about the significance of building community around thinking. Um, everything that, if you know, the Liquid Blackness Journal began and uh, around the Liquid Blackness Research Project, which is a group of graduate students and um, Alessandra at uh, Georgia State University. And the idea was we were coming together to have these research projects around art that we had been entrusted with because a filmmaker was coming or, you know, a series. And then we realized we needed to document the work. And then that became a journal. But after each one of these 
you know, events, it always had to end with like a dinner or a reception, you know, and she would have them at her house. She was like, I'll be having a pizza party. I'm going to make spaghetti for, you know, a million people. And it was kind of like, oh, well, this would be so much cheaper if we don't have this extra event. Like, why do we have to do, you know, why do we have to do this extra part? And she was the one who like made that clear to me. Like, this is the thing. This is the moment that, you know, this work opens itself to other people, you know what I mean? And then therefore, and then that's where it gains meaning. And so I'm so lucky to have that. And, you know, she's also an advisor that was, you know, willing to collaborate with me and we've now made this journal. Um, Yeah. It's just, it just is a phenomenal experience. Like the willingness to, to share um, and to work together. And even though, collaborating people are always talking about how great collaborating is um but it does not actually make things easier necessarily like it takes a lo- like anyone who's co-written something knows it actually takes a very long time to toss things back between two people and so you know she's just been willing to take on that challenge of doing things with two people which i think could double the time um so because of that incredible mentorship, that's something that I, like you, want to pass forward to people. And I think the biggest thing, because I am, you know, at an early stage of working with graduate students, is with at every single moment, I think about if my gut reaction that says you must do it like this or, um, yeah, that just has these sort of demands if I need it. Or if that is something that is something that I experienced as a graduate student at some time, um, but that I don't need, that is not helpful. Like, do graduate students need to be walking around feeling the precarity of the job market all the time? Nope. Actually, wow, I let, we could skip that part. That's actually not mandatory. So do you need to be drilling that in people's head? Do I need to make people feel like I'm going to ask questions at the end of their presentations that will undercut their work because that's important to learning? Oh, wait, actually, no, I don't need that. And so it's just a constant process of every single thing that feels like it was handed down, like that's just the way it's done, that I have to like assess, need it, don't need it. If I don't need it, I get rid of it. Um, and yeah, like, and I just, it's it's helped me realize that you know, I, I, my mentorship is not about putting graduate students through a gauntlet that then they will survive and then hooray that congratulations. That's how you get a doctorate. Like, no, um, it's thinking with them together and really trying to stop. I think some of those, it's almost like generational, like trauma, I think passed down through a lot of academics, you know, um, sort of like really tough experiences and just realizing that is none of that has been conducive to thought for me. So I don't actually have to replicate any of that. That's not mandatory. Um, Yeah. I think that that's as I build a mentorship sort of practice that it's been that constant evaluation need don't need. I think that'll end up being part of how I make sense of it as well. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's so wonderful to to help us think about, yeah, intergenerational trauma, but also pitfalls of neoliberalism that continues to cultivate and promote exaggerated individuals. And maybe one way to bring so much of the collective struggle that you've spoken to today is to end with a question that's inspired by the Montreal-born intellectual Richard Item, right, who wrote uh, In Search of the Black Fantastic. And one of the questions he liked to ask was, um, what are you listening to and what are you reading at the moment? And so that's one of the questions we like to end uh, with in the podcast. Um, And so, yeah. And if you, as 
uh, scholars of visuality, if you wish to extend this, to think through what uh, Paul Gilroy might call the ocular centrism of contemporary culture and speak about what you're watching, feel free to do so as well. So the last thing that I was reading and rereading was Kara Keeling's uh, Queer Times, Black Futures, um, which allowed me, which I was reading and rereading because I've written a review essay on it for Jump Cut, which should be out in the fall. Um, and I was really listening to, at the time, uh, Frank Ocean's Endless. So those two have really come together. Um, well, they came together in that essay, which so I'm excited about that. But right now I'm uh, working a lot on the disc, so not as much reading and rereading as I would like to be doing other than my homework. Um, but I'm listening to right now Replay by Thames over and over and I'm listening to Guess by Lucky Day over and over. And I'm watching Bel Air with utter fascination. I'm obsessed. I love it. I think it's an instant classic. I know that 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 we might okay, I've seen Lauren's face. <laughs> but I I I was ready. I've said I <laughs> I I, uh, I was really ready to um hate that show. And it has not let me hate it. So I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, so I'm like you. I'm, I'm writing a chapter right now. And I'm at a place where I really need to be living with it. And so I'm, I'm very attached to looking at everything around it. So um, I, when I write, I listen to anything, um, any moment that Nicholas Bertel and Barry Jenkins shared space, like the, all of that music, that is my writing music and that's forever. And so that's, you know, mellow writing music. And then when I need to like kick it into high gear, it is just anything that comes from like setting up a playlist around Mary J. Blige's My Life. Um, and just like whatever algorithm thing comes out of that. It's funny as a person who likes popular culture, when it comes to what I'm off hours listening to or, or doing, it, it's so locked into a particular moment. It takes me a very long time. I like creep forward in my own listening. Like if I'm listening to an album, it's like the only thing I listen to for a decade. And then I'm like, I'm ready for something new. So um, that's what I'm listening to, um, what I'm reading. Uh, so right now I'm writing about echoes and one of the things I was most excited about uh, in that process was reading writing by Tali Goff, um, who is a scholar and DJ. And so the way that, you know, they're thinking about sound and Black diaspora and geography is just phenomenal. And this is a perfect example of, I read this work, I was blown away by it. You know, the name immediately goes in my file. And then I, you know, recently had an organized an event. Um, it was on catastrophe. First invite. <laughs> like, let's do this. I, I want to think, you know, near you. Um, I want to see this work up close because it's blown me away. Um, so that's something I've been reading. What I've been watching, nothing good. Everyone who knows me knows I have terrible taste. Um, so the real answer is like some dating show on Netflix. That's, you know, you know, yikes. But what I wanted to be watching is, um, I have to really ramp myself up to watch Atlanta because it's so good that it's, it's too, it's too much. Like I have to really 
brace myself for it. And so um, we just found out how to watch it here in Canada. And so um, I'm going to meditate, careful breathing, and then watch the genius that is um, that show. It is the most incredible thing ever. Um, so that's what I want to be watching once I have the mental space to do so. I should also say, actually, I'm also watching the music video that I'm writing on, which is Nowhere Nobody, um, Earl Sweatshirt's music video, uh, directed by Naima Ramos Chapman. And so that's all I can think about right now. It's amazing. Wow, what an amazing episode. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to hear Lauren and Natalia in conversation. They left us with a real treasure trove of stimulating quotes and ethical approaches to think about liberation and decolonial praxis. And our associate producer, Alador Berekatab, also listened into the conversation. And it'd be great to bring Alador in here just to share any thoughts or questions that you were left with after listening to Lauren and Natalia. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, no, I love listening to Lauren and Natalia's, you know, the way in which they talked about so many different topics. Um, but specifically, I like the way they talked about, um, you know, the work that's dreaming of the ways in which Black people exist in this world, the possibilities that kind of art, art gives us and the possibilities, the endless possibilities that we can't necessarily see or think through um, in our daily lives. But when we talk about arts and, and the opportunities that that gives us, it's, you know, there, there's no barriers to it. Um, but something that I found really fascinating was the way that they talked about the good versus bad representation. You know, you miss out on a lot of a lot of the imaginative aspects of blackness and the possibilities of what black people can achieve and what black people can do. But a lot of the times we're so fixated on that on that sort of representation piece, what will look good, what will look bad. And I found it very, very thought provoking because, you know, in a lot of different spaces, in a lot of different situations, we are constantly walking on eggshells in fear of tainting the image of, of the black community or of our, let's say, niche community as well. And when walking on eggshells, we kind of restrict various aspects of ourselves or diminish um, certain aspects of ourselves to ensure that we're kind of being portrayed the way that we always want to be portrayed. So I always found that very interesting. I think it's something that a lot of people battle with. You know, how do I continuously put out that sort of good representation? Um, and how do I not taint, you know, the sort of image of blackness, which I found incredibly interesting throughout the throughout the podcast? I love that. And, and I love that Lauren often responded to the Natalia by saying, I love that as well. I loved how supportive they were. I loved exactly as Alador's mentioning that the conversation was not about what limits us or confines us as much as we're aware of that, but it was about how we can open ourselves up to new worlds and new possibilities. And that was a really, really fantastic reminder of the creative possibilities of Black studies and Black art and Blackness. I love that. And to build off of everything that's been said so far, the part of the conversation that stuck out to me is when Natalia expressed that although she was alone while writing her dissertation, she felt like she was collaborating with the authors of the book she was engaging with throughout her research. 
And I love this point so much because I think that the idea of seeing the authors, musicians, and scholars that you're reading and listening to along the journey of your research as active participants in your work was such a beautiful way to illustrate the expansiveness of what it looks like to be in collaboration with each other and truly embrace the endless creative possibilities of Black studies. This not only closes the limitation of distance where we can be in collaboration with anyone across space and time, but it also opens up the idea that the outputs we create are not static artifacts, but rather pieces that are constantly activated by other people's curiosity, and this fluidity allows for so many more possibilities. Mm-hmm. And even the idea, what I loved also about Natalia's comment was how specific it is to growing up at a particular time and space, like going home to watch 106 and Park, right? That's a particular moment, right? But also the sense that being open to intergenerational communication in terms of saying that when Natalia engages with a piece of music, she's not just hearing that piece of music, she's also hearing the sample and she's thinking about how her parents may have engaged with that that type of music too. So it's it's like being part of that ongoing conversation through the text, but also through the music, through the sound, through the groove, and always being open, yes, to different possibilities, but the idea that Blackness is also a changing scene. It's an acknowledgement of tradition, but a tradition that is ceaselessly in motion. Thank you, Daniel, and thanks, Alador, for those thoughtful reflections. That wraps up today's episode, and thanks again for tuning into the Black Studies Podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback, so feel free to rate and review us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and contact us with your questions, comments, and ideas for future episodes. We're on Instagram at Black Studies Podcast, and can also be reached at the Black Studies Podcast at gmail.com. We'll be dropping another episode next week, and we hope you have a wonderful week filled with joy. Take care. Thank you.